title of tonight's devotion is, Some Are Persuaded. Some Are Persuaded. And when you think about the gospel presentation or sharing the gospel or the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done with any particular person that you might come into contact with, there's two distinct responses to the presentation of the gospel that are possible. And it's simply simply this. Some people are persuaded and some people are not. Some people accept the message through faith and some people reject it through unbelief. And that's made abundantly clear in the book of Acts. This last chapter, there's been lots of examples leading up to this, but this last of check, chapter, I think fittingly, it ends with this. Now, the book of Acts, of course, was a history of this transitionary period between the time when Jesus was on earth with his earthly ministry, between his birth and his death, the time that he was physically here teaching, spending time with the disciples, spending time with many followers of his that had placed their faith in him, saw him as the solution to their sinfulness, knew that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one could come to the Father except through him. And as people responded to him, that message, of course, progressed to a message of his death, burial, and resurrection on Calvary as the final substitute or the final lamb to be sacrificed for sin, God's perfect lamb that would take the place of the guilty, who would die in the place of those who deserved to die. And so as the culmination of that story is Christ's death, then you have the development as he goes. He says, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. I'm not going to leave you empty-handed. I'm going to leave you my spirit with you, but I want you to share this good news with many others while I'm gone. He says, I'm going to come back, but while I'm gone, I want you to tell as many people as possible about me. Share this message. Be lights in the darkness. Don't hide your light. Don't put it under a bushel basket. Be a way for people to see me as you're a reflection of me as my spirit works in and through you. And so then you had the building or the development of the early church, something that had been a valley in the Old Testament that wasn't seen clearly from the Old Testament, but was now revealed in the New Testament that there'd be this intermission, if you will, this delay or postponement of God's culmination of his kingdom with beginning with a thousand-year millennial kingdom following the tribulation period in his second coming. And so as you think about God's plan for the ages, we're in that phase right now where the church age, the age of grace, as dispensationalists, we understand that God has different house rules or a plan of administration, rules of administration that apply to his dealings with mankind and that they've changed or they've varied over time. And we're in this age now of the church. And as the church, Christ's bride, is developed, the book of Acts is that transitionary book that tells us historically how did that come to be? How did we get from Jesus going back to heaven, leaving the followers behind with his spirit to local churches. Well, the book of Acts recalls that. And so we started at the very beginning on these church fellowship nights and we've been working our way through some of the highlights of the book of Acts and we've spent a lot of time on it. Now we found our way to the 28th 
chapter and throughout that book, though, there's been all of these examples of the gospel message being presented through the ministry of Peter, some of the first chapters of Acts, and then moving on to the life of Paul and how they were instrumental in developing local churches, planting local churches in these different places. Paul has these missionary journeys that we've looked at, you know, starting with Barnabas and then Paul and Silas and Timothy, his missionary journeys going to these different locations and establishing churches, establishing even church leaders, coming back and following up with them so that they could grow in their understanding and they could develop in their faith as these was the infancy of the church age. And so we followed a lot of that. And along the way, Paul has consistently, as we moved into his life, he'd been consistently proclaiming the message of Jesus to different groups of people in many different countries, in many different locations, in many different, I guess, locations and places, same thing. And people had a choice to make, right? Just like they have a choice to make in our day. They had a choice to either what? Either be persuaded or to reject the message that was presented to them. Now, did some people respond? Kids, did some people, as we've been going through this, as Paul talked to them, did some of them respond to the gospel and put their faith in Jesus Christ? Yeah, they did, right? Can you give me any examples of any of the ones we talked about? This one here probably has to be muted. I think it's feeding back a little bit. Okay, well, there's a a number of different people, right? The Philippian jailer was one of the people that Paul came to. Lydia, who was a seller of purple. Remember, she sold purple things, and she responded with other believers to the gospel message. And there's many more that you could talk about. Jason was one of them in Thessalonica. Uh, Paul was run out of town in many places, though, right? So some people responded. They were persuaded by the message, but there was two options, right? There was going to be revival, or there was going to be revolution or revolt, and Paul got chased out of places. He, he was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was abused in many different ways as people rejected the message of Jesus. So that got us to the point where in our story that this is, this is why it's such a fitting end to the book of Acts is because that's sort of been the primary theme of the whole book is that Paul goes to a new place, presents the truth about Jesus Christ and waits to see what the response is going to going to be. So now it's going to end with one more illustration of these two different responses to the gospel. So if you haven't already turned to Acts 28, we're going to, Lord willing, finish the book of Acts here tonight. Now, for background, he had traveled to all these places, but on this last journey, he went to Jerusalem. Now, remember when he went to Jerusalem, did he know that there was danger awaiting him there? Did Paul know that, kids? Yeah, he did know that, and he went went anyway. He said that he was ready. He was prepared to, to both suffer and to die for the sake of the gospel. Now, is that a perspective that we have? We could. We haven't really had the opportunity to face that kind of a decision, though, have we? That's not the kind of decision that people have to face in our country in the most blessed land on earth. But Paul was ready to do that. You have to ask yourself, would I be ready to do that? Anyway, he went to Jerusalem. He was arrested. There was no legitimate charges really brought against him. He was examined multiple times by two different regional governors and also by King Agrippa. No guilt was established in any of those hearings, in any of those examinations, as he even was evaluated or discussed his case with some of those that were serving in the armed forces for Rome as he dealt with some of the centurions and some of the people that were in charge of overseeing him, they actually ended up really liking Paul. 
because they saw that he was being railroaded and that he hadn't really done anything wrong, that he was, he was an upright person. And he shared the gospel with many of those people too. We'll get to that in a little bit here yet tonight. So no guilt, false charges, trumped up charges. Nobody ever establishes any guilt, but in any event, he finds his way going to Rome because he appealed his case to Caesar. Do you guys remember that? Not, not if you remember where we're at in the story here, right? He appealed his case to Caesar. He started a ship voyage to go to Rome. Now, that, that voyage went really well, didn't it? No, no hiccups along the way, right? Is that true, kids? No, no there was a few hiccups, right? Okay. So he ends up getting some other opportunities to share the gospel with people. Remember that he was shipwrecked. He ended up in Malta. He was there for three months. We talked about that the last time we met for a, for a church fellowship night. In Malta, he had the opportunity to present the truth of Jesus. Now, we had to infer some of that based on the fact that he did that absolutely everywhere he went. Uh, but he was there for three months, and he was warmly welcomed by the people there. And they had responded to to an incident they saw with a snake bite, and they had a high regard for him, so they were listening to him. Do you remember that part of the story? Shook off the snake, poisonous snake, didn't, didn't die. The people were like, whoa. And so then he had an opportunity to go into their home to be provided for by them, to be cared for by them, and to share the good news about Jesus. Again, we added kind of an assumption there on that, but it would be ridiculous to think that he didn't do that based on all of the evidence that we have available to us. So then he leaves Malta. He's now starting the final leg of his trip. So let's pick up this. I want to say that this section here, this next section starting in verse 11, that's where we left off last time. The encouragement of fellow believers is what I call this section. Let's read through verse 15. After three months, that was three months on Malta, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, interesting detail, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled round and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew. And the next day, we came to Petulai, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, we when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, I just want to make a few observations about that section. So he traveled from Malta to Syracuse. Syracuse is on the island of Sicily, which is just south, south of Italy. So we see that in verse 12. Then they traveled to the mainland of Italy. It's a really narrow gap there. I should have put something up for you to look at, but you're going to have to picture that boot of Italy comes down. Sicily is a big island right off the tip of the boot, and they basically go to the southwest edge of Sicily, and then they go up through the narrow gap up to the what would be the western shoreline of, of Italy. That's where this place called Petulai is, P-U-T-E-O-L-I. So they make one stop there, and then they move up the coast. Now they're at this place that's just south of Rome. So if you imagine this place, P-U-T-E-O-L-I, Petuioli, however you would say that, that's where Paul is at. Now when he gets there, local believers invited him to stay with them for seven days. So a few things. One, Paul must have had quite a bit of clout with this, the Roman centurion who was bringing these prisoners to Rome because, or it's just 
corresponded that they ended up stopping there for seven days. I don't know. Either way, Paul spent seven days there visiting and being invited into the home of and receiving hospitality from these local believers that were in this place. Now, this is the only time this place is mentioned in the Bible. We don't know anything about these believers. Just that Paul came to this place. Do you think God had something to do with it? I think it did. We're going to see that he was encouraged by this. So he came to this place. There were believers there. And they welcomed him in for seven days. Now think about that the next time I ask you to just spend one night at your house. Okay? Seven, seven nights. That's the rule. Okay? So seven, up to seven nights is just considered good hospitality. Then after that, maybe you're unwelcome. Okay? I'm, I'm kidding, kids, but wake up, pay attention. You can stick with this story. This is a story. So unlike some of the stuff I teach where it's just heavy doctrine, this is, this is a story. And Paul is working his way up the coast. He stayed with them for seven days. I think that's very encouraging. And I know, I imagine Paul with all that he's gone through, that he has a chance just to go fellowship with some believers. Now you get to do that tonight. And you didn't have to travel by ship to do that. You didn't really have to inconvenience yourself that much at all. In a modern day with modern vehicles, I know the roads are kind of slippery, so be safe on the, on the way home, but you get to come do that a kind, almost whenever you want to an extent, but regularly you get the opportunity to do that. Well, Paul, he, I'm sure he was very refreshed for that to happen. Then what happened next? In verse 15, you see that believers from Rome heard that Paul was coming to meet them, and so they came to visit with him. Now, that's how I take this passage where it says, And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum, that's one place, and three inns, two different places that they stopped along the way. And when Paul saw them, each time he got this opportunity to interact with believers, he thanked God and he took courage. I mean, he was encouraged by getting to have the opportunity to do this. Now, think about the people who came to visit with Paul. It involved some willingness on their part to do that. It involved some amount of inconvenience for them to do this. You see these two places, Appi Forum and Three Inns? The two towns were 43 miles and 33 miles south of Rome, respectively. So believers from Rome heard that Paul was coming, and some of them went 33 miles to this place called Three Inns, which is closest to Rome. Again, we're coming up the, the front part of your boot uh, the boot of Italy, we're coming up this western side, coming towards Rome, and we're a little bit below that. This place, though called Three Inns, 33 miles away. That's where most of them, it looks like it went went to. But then some of them went as far as this Appi Forum, which was 43 miles from Rome. Now, you think about that, that's an hour, an hour in a car nowadays. But there's a lot more expense and inconvenience in those days to travel that far just knowing that the Apostle Paul was coming. Because we already have a church established in Rome. Paul has already had interactions with them. He's already been effective. He's already effectuated some relationship with them. And so they hear he's coming and they want to come and see him. And then, of course, we see that Paul, again, was thankful and he was encouraged by this. Now, question, could Paul have been encouraged by these believers if they never came to visit? And the answer is possibly just thinking about the fact that they existed or assuming that maybe they were praying for him. He could have been encouraged by them. He was encouraged by believers from a distance in the, in the past. But I think in this context, no. The answer is no. Not in, the same, not in the same way. Not in the same way as somebody showing up into your life, taking time out of their life, spending some of the substance of their existence, 
some of the, the finite substance of their life, you see somebody expend some of the substance of their life on you, doesn't that make you feel all warm and tingly? Now, if we're in a real, and if we're in a real bad place, we're like, no, I, you know, I don't want anyone visiting me. I don't want anyone calling on me or taking any time for me. I like to just be alone. But if you're thinking correctly, doesn't that melt your heart to know that somebody would notice you, think about you, take time out of their otherwise busy life for you? And so in any event, you can imagine that Paul was encouraged by this. And I hope you see that. I hope you see from all, a lot of what we've covered here in the hospitality that we've seen between believers throughout the book of Acts, how much God wants to use you, wants to work in your life for the benefit of others. So then if we keep going here, we're going to see they get to Rome, and we're going to see a little bit about house arrest. I have this section titled, House Arrest Was Different Back Then. Back then. Verse 16, now when we came to Rome, so we're finally there. You know, God appeared to Paul and he told him, you're going to be a minister. You're going to be a witness for me in Rome. You're going to be a witness for me in front of kings. You're going to be a witness for me, though, he said in Rome, and here he is. It's been quite a journey. He had been two years in Caesarea anyway. He's been traveling for months. He's been shipwrecked. He's gone through a bunch of adverse circumstances on the way here, but here he is in Rome. So kids, look at your Bibles and read. Verse 16, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So he was, he was effectively, other prisoners were turned over to the normal prison system. But remember, Paul had gained favor with this centurion. And as a Roman citizen, he was entitled to a certain amount of deference. He had certain rights afforded to him. But this seems like it has more to do with just he had made a favorable impression on somebody and that person was in a place of power. Being in a place of power, that person had the ability to choose. Just like a judge in our day, has, he can choose. You're going to prison or I'm going to give you an ankle monitor and you're going to be on house arrest. Now, which one do you think would be preferable in our day? House arrest, right? House arrest with an ankle monitor, even if you had that, or sometimes they don't even have that. You're on house arrest, somebody vouches that they won't let you out of their sight, and you're effect- effectively given over to their supervision, and you go to house arrest. Now, in a day of technology, in a day of television, computers, internet, phones, books, day of refrigeration, day of grocery stores around the corner for people to bring groceries into the home, you've got your own bed, you've got your own clothes, you've got heat, doesn't seem like such a bad punishment, does it? But this house arrest was a little bit different, but it was still a blessing from God. And we'll see that God doesn't necessarily have a concern about things that don't have some possibility or have, have some, I mean, his focus is on how he can work in our lives to effectuate uh, his message of truth into the lives of others or to minister into the lives of others. And I shouldn't say he doesn't care about the rest of it, but his underlying, God is a detail-oriented God, so his underlying purpose in allowing some of these things or working some of these things out was that it would enhance the ability of Paul to proclaim Jesus to many people. And having this house that was rented, you're going to see here, lots of people were able to come and hear teaching from Paul, which would have been much more difficult in prison. Now, does that mean that God is restricted in any way? Does it mean God can't work to use us in prisons? Did God use Paul in prison before this? What prison was that? 
in Philippi, right? The prison in Philippi, yeah. He was unjustly in that prison too. And what did he do while he was there? How did God use him in the prison in Philippi? Owen? He sang, he sang songs. He praised the Lord, right? Did that into the nighttime. Maybe he, maybe he drove some of the other prisoners a little bit batty. That's not what the story says, though. It says that the other prisoners were so impressed by that testimony that they had a high respect for the Apostle Paul. Remember how many of them escaped when they could have escaped? How many, Owen? None, right? means that they had some, something had effectu- affected their thinking where they decided to stay put. In any event, God used him in an actual prison, but we're going to see that logistically God utilized this little nugget here that the centurion allowed him to be on house arrest. He used that for the benefit of the gospel message. Now, I just want you to know that in Paul's day, house arrest meant that his guard never left his side. And there's some speculation on this based on historical documents, but some say there were two, two 12-hour shifts where a guard was physically chained to Paul that entire time. I want you to turn, let's, just so we keep ourselves awake, kids, let's turn to Ephesians. I want to just read you a, a little bit about house arrest here. Ephesians chapter 6. See if you can get there. Stand up when you're there, if you're the first one there. Are you there already? Okay, read it, read it, read it to yourself. We're not going to have you read it out loud just because it won't come through on the tape. So I'm going to read it, but you read it with me. It's okay that you're standing up. Uh, let's read it together, though. Ephesians 6, and we're going to pick up in verse 18. He says this, Paul is talking about their prayers for him and his prayers for them, and he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me that utterance may be given to me. So he's saying, pray that for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So Paul's saying, pray that for me, for which I am an ambassador in, see this, in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So we know Paul was under house arrest. Where did he write Ephesians from? Kids, where did he write Ephesians from? House arrest in Rome, okay? So while he was on house arrest, he was still in chains though. And again, extra biblical historical research reveals that that's normally how that would be handled is that he would actually have been physically chained to a Roman guard all the time. So that seems a little awkward at certain times, right? But he would always be chained to, to a guard. Now let's keep going with our story. Paul, now that he's in Rome, he's now got a house that has been rented, probably in all likelihood rented house. He ends up, we're going to see, being there for two years in that scenario. He had been two years in Caesarea anyway, in a similar kind of confined state, but he had quite a bit of freedom in Caesarea too. But in any event, he's now going to meet with the local Jewish leaders. Let's pick up in verse 17. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. Now is that entirely true? That's a summary, right? 
they had found nothing at fault with Paul. They had not found him guilty, but they hadn't necessarily wanted to let him go. The one time we can see that is with Agrippa, who says, had he not appealed to Caesar, we would have let him go, or we could have let him go. So that's what Paul's referring to, that he could have been let go in any event. All right. Uh, 19, but when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. So there we have him again referencing that he was still in chains even though he was on, under house arrest. But he's meeting with these local Jewish leaders. Now recall this has been Paul's pattern throughout the book of Acts that when he comes to a place, who does he go to share the gospel with first? Who? Uh, not, not, just, not believers specifically. Where does he go first? Jew, to the Jewish synagogues, right? He goes to the Jewish people and he, gives the, he presents the gospel message to them. Now, why does he do that specifically, do you think? What's well, at least one reason? What nationality is Paul? Jewish. So who does he have the greatest concern for? People he refers to as his brethren, people he thinks are part of his extended family. Somewhat, nat- nat- somewhat natural, right? That you would have a closer, that's why we have these cultural um, cultural kinds of gatherings, festivals all over this country. Uh, different people of different cultures celebrate their shared culture and they get together and they, they do that with a kind of jubilation that they wouldn't necessarily have with somebody they don't have as much in common with because they don't have the same shared traditions, customs, ancestry, those kinds of things. And so in any event, that's what Paul did historically and he did it here too. And so he brings the gospel message to them, he gives a summary of how he came to be in chains, how he was, why he was under arrest, and he makes it clear that the gospel is the reason for his chains. He refers to it as the hope of Israel. It was ultimately because of the hope of Israel that Paul found himself in chains. It was his testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is both Messiah and Lord, that constituted the real contention between him and the Jews. Now remember, what part of the gospel were they so offended by? Well, part of it was that Jesus is God, that he was deity, that he was who he said he was. So his very person was under attack by the Jewish people. But then one section of the Jewish people, uh, of the two main sects of, of Jews, we had Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees did not believe in what? A bodily resurrection. And so they were deeply offended by his talking not only about Jesus' resurrection, but how that because of our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, there was a hope that we would also be resurrected and have an eternity to spend with God in the place that he had gone to prepare for us. That was something that was very offensive to a segment of the Jews, but it was the person and work of Jesus that the Jewish leadership, specifically the religious leaders, had rejected. And so that was, when you talk about the hope of Israel, the hope of Israel was found in the Messiah, the message of Jesus Christ. And of course, so he's saying that's the reason I'm in chains is this idea of hope. And the hope, of course, is, cl- is directly connected to the resurrection in multiple passages in the New Testament. So that was the real issue, he tells them. And Paul highlighted that in several of his defense speeches. If we, if we were to look at 
if we were to take the time, we're not going to make a note of this if you're interested, but in 20, chapter 23, verse 6, chapter 24, verse 15, chapter 26, verse 8, chapter 26, verse 23, when Paul's defending himself, it's often to do with the resurrection, and often to do with the message, the message of Christ's resurrection and our resurrection, but specifically, it was the gospel message in its entirety that had been offensive to the Jewish religious leaders who had rejected Jesus Christ. Now I want to keep going. I want this next section. People are talking and the word is spreading. People are talking and the word is spreading. Let's read verses 21 and 22. Then they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. So this, we're not aware of the conflict that you had with other Jewish people in Thessalonica, or not Thessalonica, in Caesarea area, in Jerusalem, and then where he was imprisoned in Caesarea. But it says, we desire to hear from you what you think. Now why? For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. People are talking about this message of Jesus Christ. The word is spreading. You see, the Jewish leaders hadn't heard about Paul's issues with Jerusalem Jews specifically, but the early church clearly understood its mission and was clearly effective at proclaiming the truth of who Jesus was because this message was taking hold. This message was being heard about. This message was spreading. And even the offense that was caused by the preaching of the cross, preaching of the cross is an offense to those who have rejected it, right? And including Jewish spiritual leaders or religious leaders specifically. That was offensive to them. And so that was spreading, though. But they still were interested in it because they had heard about it. The message of Christ stood in stark contrast to traditional Judaism. Now turn to Acts 17, since we're in Acts here. I want you just to see other discussion about how this message was spreading. It's, it's really convicting, actually, to just see how well this message had been spreading. You can read about how many people were saved in the first chapters of Acts. Every day it says people were being added to the church family. But it was hundreds and thousands of people at a time that were getting saved. And it was pretty, pretty intense and pretty interesting. But Acts 17.6 says, now we're in Thessalonica here. Remember, the gospel message comes to a town. It either causes revival, a response of faith, or revolt where they're chased out of town. So Acts 17.6, but when they did not find them, they were looking for Paul. When they did not find him, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. This is again in Thessalonica. And they cried out what? They cried out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a witness for Christ? Imagine you're the guy that because you've been proclaiming the truth of Jesus has turned a town upside down. So that when you come to the new town, they're like, look out for that guy. This is, this is one of those guys that is turning the world upside down. Now, is it doing it through bringing some kind of revolution to the town? No. Is it some, are you bringing some kind of business opportunity to the town? Is that what's turning it upside down? You're coming to town with some sort of civil works project where you're cleaning up the town. You're building and planting new trees and building a new park and it's turning the town upside down. No, it's a message of Jesus Christ that's being brought from town to town. The good news of who Jesus is and what he's done and it's turning the towns upside down. 
the religious system of the Jewish people, the custom, the customs that had been followed and the traditions that had been followed that Jesus hadn't said none of those are any good or none of those apply anymore, but he'd said, he'd said what you're focused on is a, a human-based self-help plan, this effort to make yourself righteous on the basis of what you can do for God instead of recognizing that you have to put your confidence and faith alone in what God has done for you, that message was turning the world upside down. Because a message of works is incompatible with a message of faith, grace, Christ. All alone. Throw alone at the end of that in whatever order you want. So you think about that. It was turning the world upside down. Now, do any, can any of you relate to that? Not like this. Can you relate to it in a small measure, even as it affects this church, though? Think back a little while. Think back to the founding of this church. Think back to the impact that that clear gospel message had on this community at some point in time. A community largely dominated by denominations. There wasn't, there wasn't a lot. We talked about this at a, I don't know if it was a Bible study or a board meeting or whatever, but this local area there, there weren't, wasn't such a thing as non-denominational, independent kinds of churches that wasn't commonplace. And then a light, a little spark, a little spark came into this community, right? And some of you were a part of some of the denominations, not that the dom- denominations are the issue. That's not the point. The point is that if, if the message of the gospel isn't clear, if it's not that, ma- that you have a problem that you're estranged from God due to your sinfulness, that God made a way of rescue through the person and work of his son and his sacrificial death on your behalf and that the only way you can get a hold of that is through faith alone. That it's purely God's gracious act towards you when you didn't deserve it and the only way to get a hold of it is to accept the gift that's been offered to you and there's absolutely nothing you can do to improve on that or contribute to that in any way. And at the moment you put your faith in that, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're born into God's family and he'll never let you go that you could never lose that salvation. That message was distinct. It was a little more clear. It, was, it, was, it, it got rid of some of the baggage that had been associated with some of the other messages you had grown up hearing. Amen? Some of you are here today, right? That was different than that message that you had heard growing up. And people responded to that message, right? And then their brothers responded to that message. And then the guy they worked with responded to that message. And then that guy's neighbor responded to that message. And pretty soon, this building was filled to capacity. It, a lot of steps along the way. How did, the, how did the faith community respond to that? Was, that? was this church then popular with those other churches that people had left behind to come and hear verse-by-verse verse Bible teaching, hear a clear gospel message? What kind of derogatory things were said about the pastor of this church? What kind of derogatory things were said about the people who would come to this church? Does it sound kind of similar? People here were accused of being a part of a cult, right? What do do they end up calling it here? A sect. Very similar idea. See, when people are excited about Jesus Christ and they're just blown away by him and they're absolutely captivated by him, they want to tell people about him. And as the light shines into the darkness, the light casts out darkness. 
people do respond. Not everyone. But remember, some are persuaded. Some are persuaded. The issue isn't that there's no harvest to bring in. The fields are white and they're ready to harvest. The issue is that the laborers are few, friends. In any event, that's not really even the primary point here. But it is true that this was turning the world upside down. People were starting to take notice. So we see that word sect. It's a reference to the sect of the Nazarenes is what believers were called. You can find that in Acts 24. You'd only have to go back a couple of pages there. But Acts 24, 5, this is how it was described. For we have found this man a plague. This was an accusation about Paul. We have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So you could replace Nazarenes with Jesus, a sect of Jesus. Because Nazarene there refers to the place Jesus was from, Nazareth. Fourteen times in the New Testament, Jesus is associated with Nazareth. And that's how they came up with this, the sect of the Nazarenes. He was referred to as the Nazarene. And so it's a reference to these followers of Jesus. That would be another way of calling them. So instead of following of the traditions of men, now granted, originally the traditions of men had come from God from God himself, but it had been perverted into a works, a works system, a system of trying to attain salvation through the basis of what you could do for God instead of showing you that you had a need for what God would ultimately do for you. That the, way that the only way that your sin problem could be dealt with is through God's gracious provision on your behalf that you were helpless apart from him intervening in providing a way of rescue for you. Now, it was forward-looking to a redeemer who would come, who hadn't yet come, but there was nothing wrong with it to begin with. It was given from God. But man had naturally perverted it and made it into a way of feeling self-righteous or justifying yourself or comparing yourself to others and saying, I deserve God's favor. Because I'm so much better than the next guy. Where can you see an example of that? Two people went into a temple to pray. Kids, anyone know that? Two people went into the temple to pray. What was one? Go ahead, Calvin, if you know. Yeah, who was the other one? You know? (laughs) He was a religious man, right? What he? What was the religious man's prayer? Yep, Calvin. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Yeah, very proud. He was very full of himself, and he said basically, he said, "God, you are sure lucky to have me." That's kind of what he said, right? And then he took it one step farther, and he said, "And, and thank God that I'm not like." That guy over there. What did the other one say? Okay, Calvin, you're on a roll. I like the one. I like the word that you said. Low. It was very humble. He said, "God, be merciful to me, because I'm I'm a sinner." Right? Did he recognize that he he had a need for God's grace to be applied to him? Yeah, he did. I, I will all answer that one for us. He, he understood that. So in any event, how did we get to that? Um, 
you got people that naturally take something that was good and they pervert it and then they missed the whole thing because that was all, it was always supposed to point man to their need to be rescued, to the one who could come along and could be a final solution to that problem. And then he came unto his own and his own what? They received him not. And we cover that sometimes at the holiday season. But I also want you to note this before we move on. Believers at this time are spoken of everywhere. See, their impact on society is so great that there's people speaking about them everywhere. Now also note this, they are spoken against. Go to the end of verse 22. So for concerning this sect, it's, we're hearing about it everywhere, but we know that it is spoken against everywhere. There's a natural opposition to God's truth because man loves darkness rather than light. It says Satan has blinded their eyes. So the light is coming into the world. The message of Christ is being brought to these communities and they're being spoken out against, the people who are bringing the light. So kids, is it possible that when you open up your mouth to speak about Jesus Christ that somebody might speak out against you? Is that possible? They might say something mean about you, come up with a little nickname for you, exclude you from their friend group. Could that happen? It does happen. It can happen and it does happen. Now, you know what? You know when it doesn't happen? When they have no idea you're even a Christian. When you never tell anyone every, anywhere that you love Jesus Christ and that he's important to you, they'd never persecute you for that because they'd never know. It'd be just your secret. Think about that. The only way you could be persecuted because of Jesus Christ is if they know you were identified with Jesus Christ. Think about that, kids, when you're more concerned about what your friends think about your clothes than you are what they think about life and death, heaven and hell, eternity. You think it's so important that they notice your new hairdo, but how about where will they spend eternity? And if nobody tells them about Jesus, how could they possibly ever believe in Jesus? So that's why Paul is saying, pray that I would have boldness. Pray that I wouldn't be afraid of what other people think about me so that I could boldly proclaim Jesus Christ into the lives of the people that God brings me into contact with. So don't be surprised when they hate you because they hated him first, Jesus says. Now, verse 23, Paul's going to preach Jesus Christ. Verse 23, so when they had appointed him a day, many came to him to his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Now some of you kids are thinking this is getting a little long. You're losing us here, okay? And it's, it's been a little while here for this message. But this message went on from morning till evening. How does that sound? Should we do that on Sunday just to try it out? Okay, we'll have a vote. We'll have a vote afterwards, okay, where you'll get to, you'll, I'm, I'm seeing a few people. Let's, a few votes already being cast against this. But what was the content of the message that Paul preached? It's summarized with the terms kingdom of God and Jesus. And the phrase kingdom of God in this context likely refers primarily to God's overarching sovereign rule and comprehensive plan for the ages. Now, there's other contexts where it can have a little bit different flavor, but that's my take on it. I wouldn't be dogmatic about that. 
The central focus of Paul's conversation, though, was Jesus, who he was, Jesus' finished work on the cross, how Jesus fit into God's eternal plan, how Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises, how Jesus would one day return to reign on earth in fulfillment of the promises that had been made to the Jewish nation. See, do you think some of that came up? Wouldn't a Jewish person naturally have a question? If the kingdom has been postponed due to unbelief, what about God's promises? Does that mean God won't keep his promises? So naturally, that would be a part of talking about the kingdom of God. What is God's plan? What, what, what has he said? Well, he said he would come again. He didn't, say, he didn't say that he wouldn't fulfill his promises. He said that promise is not going to be fulfilled right now due to your hard-heartedness, due to your rejection of me, due to your unbelief. But that's all wrapped into this conversation from morning to night, likely that Paul had. These are very loaded Terms. You see, many Jewish people understandably struggled to accept that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, that rejection had resulted in postponement of Christ's earthly reign, that he had died as an atoning sacrifice for sins, and that faith in his finished work was the exclusive way to be justified before God. Some of these things they had to look backward into the Scripture, but where did they look to prove these things? They looked They had to be persuaded by God's word. You see how it says they had to be persuaded about these things? Well, what were they persuaded by? By fancy words that Paul had to speak? No, they were persuaded about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament. Taking out the books of poetry, you're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the major and minor prophets. And and some would argue that there's even more included in those two general terms. That's how they were that's how they were persuaded with the word of God. Hebrews four twelve says, For the word of God is living and powerful, and it's sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Paul understood what had power. It was Christ working through him, and it was God's word that was most powerful. And so that's what he persuaded them with. Now, what did he show them in the Old Testament about Jesus? Where do we find Jesus in the Old Testament? Looking backwards, he said, you can see him, his, the fingerprints of him, the foreshadowing about him, the allusions to him. You can find that throughout the Scripture. Now, direct references, you can refer, see Psalms, Psalm 22, I believe, pretty clear. Isaiah 53, pretty clear, specifically talking about the suffering of the Messiah. But there's lots of pictures, foreshadowing allusions that are made to Jesus throughout the Old Testament scriptures from the beginning to end. And Paul used his knowledge of that to try to persuade them. Now, what were the responses? Verse 24. Kids, we're getting there. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken. So some, that was one response, and some disbelieved. Some disbelieved. What a fun way of saying they rejected what God, what, what Paul said about Jesus Christ. So then Paul challenged them. We're not going to spend a lot of time there. Paul challenged them. Pick up in verse 25. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit, he's quoting now from Isaiah, I believe. The Holy Scripture spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear, 
and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears and heart are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. That's the definition of repentance right there. Changing of minds, changing of thinking. It's not about what you're turning from, it's about who you're turning to. Turning away from something else and putting your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Then we get to verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. So Paul challenges them. See, Paul realizes the travesty of their rejection given their mission as Jewish people was to be lights for Jesus Christ. So this is an example of Paul provoking these Jews to jealousy with the reference to the Gentiles here with an exclamation point. The Gentiles, they're going to hear it. You should have been the ones proclaiming it. You should have responded to it to begin with. Now the, now the Gentiles are going to be the ones that hear it. The age of this unique conglomeration of Jews and Gentiles in Christ, the body of Christ, the church age, is now where we're at instead. And you see that from Paul uses that tactic in Romans chapter 11 too where he says, For I speak to you Gentiles insomuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. See, by saying things like this, he hoped to get them thinking so that some of his countrymen, his fellow Jewish people, would respond in faith to the message of Jesus Christ. He, he said, I would give up of myself, I would give up my own life if my countrymen or my fellow Jews would believe. That's how much he cared for his fellow Jewish people. Now we come to verse 29. The gospel creates conflict. And when he had departed... And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute amongst themselves. You see, some responded, some were persuaded, and some were not. That's the only two responses you can have. It's kind of interesting that that's what happens or that's what's described here. Now we, we see that serving the Lord can be done regardless of the circumstances around you. You can serve the Lord regardless of your circumstances. Verse 30 and 31. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. See how God undertook for that so he could be available to people? What did he do, though? He preached the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. And no one forbade him or no one forbidding him. So God works all things together for good. Here's Paul, basically four years straight that he's incarcerated in one way, shape, or form. But God can use willing, the willing believer anywhere and under any circumstances. God is not limited in any way. If you're in prison, then, then so be it. The Lord can use you there. If you're living in a prison of your own making, then so be it. The Lord can use you there and he can give you escape from that. If you're living in the frozen tundra, the Lord can use you there. If you're living in an apartment or a home that you don't particularly like, the Lord can use you there. If you're, if you're working in a job that you don't like, the Lord can use you there. If you're having to go to school in a place you don't want to be going to school, the Lord can use you there too. Okay, if you're shopping for food at the grocery store and you don't want to, the Lord can use you there. You could come up with some more examples, right? 
and you're saying, please don't. The Lord can use you wherever you are, and I want to end with this. You have to be willing, but he can use whatever set of circumstances there is. I'm going to read for you Philippians 1, 12 through 14, and then verse 22 too. Paul says to the Philippians, he wrote the Philippian letter while he was in this house arrest in Rome. That's why I'm going to here. So while he was under these circumstances, this is what he wrote. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, because they had to shift soldiers taking turns, guarding him. It it started to work its way through the whole thing. The whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. He told them why he was there. He explained the gospel message. He preached the name of Jesus. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And if you go to the end of the book, verse 22, or the end of the, uh, I might have messed up that, this reference. This is in chapter 4, verse 22. It's, it's not chapter 1. Chapter 4, verse 22. But it says, all of the saints great, greet you. This is how he's ending the letter of Philippians. But especially those who are of Caesar's household. Remember, you're going to come to Rome. You're going to be an ambassador to kings. You're going to be a witness before kings. Caesar's household, Caesar's soldiers were affected by one man's willingness to proclaim Jesus Christ. One man's willingness to proclaim Jesus Christ led to boldness among many men and women so that they were willing to proclaim Jesus Christ. You see how that wildfire could spread if we could get on fire for Jesus Christ? Not through our own strength, not through mysticism, not through emotionalism, but by getting our eyes on him, by reflecting on what he's done for us, by seeing who he is and how he's faithful. And as that fills our souls with praise, it would be noticeable to those who are around us. And all of a sudden they would say, look at that guy. Look at the joy of the Lord. That's his strength. Man, maybe I should get my eyes off of my circumstances and onto the Lord too. And then there's two. And then two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes 16. And I can't only go so far because I'm not great with math but it spreads like wildfire, right? So remember that. You know, Paul, he remained here for two years. It's believed that he was released at some point in time. It's believed that he engaged in additional mission outreach for maybe two to four more years before he was imprisoned in an actual dark hole, metal cage kind of prison where he ended up being executed in approximately 66 AD. Now, that's not found in the Bible. You, you have inferences from First and Second Timothy and Titus as to some additional min- ministries that he might have been involved in. There's some implications that he was released from this first Roman imprisonment, but there's not even uniform agreement about how his, how his life played out. But Acts ends right here. And, and effectively, the story of Paul's life ends right here in terms of a historical account. And so Paul goes on, though, to serve the Lord till his last breath. We can go to 2 Timothy if you want to read about kind of the last gasps of his life. Do that for devotions maybe with your kids. Read about how his life ended in a prison prison, dark and cold prison. He was convinced that he had fought a good fight. He was convinced that he had run the race that was set in front of him. He was ready to meet the Lord. He wasn't scared to die. But he was all alone. 
many had, he said, all had forsaken me. He says to Timothy, come and visit quickly because I don't know how much time I got left. But he died for his faith. That's how his life ended. And so we can be encouraged that with his last breaths, he was trying to persuade people to accept Jesus Christ. And like the title of our message says, some, some were persuaded. So let's keep preaching his name because some are persuaded. And it's the difference between life and death for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you even for giving uh, the young people the opportunity to sit in here with us, even though it's kind of a long service, longer than what they're used to in Sunday school. But pray that they would have picked up some nuggets and that they would have a desire to have their lives kind of sound like the Apostle Paul's life. Where for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain was his attitude. Pray that that could be all of our attitudes. Thank you again for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.